electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Thursday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Boza. Carl is on assignment today. Buffett's newest tech bet. We will break down the move and how it fits with Berkshire's other tech investments. And who better to discuss making big calls than investor Dan Niles with us this hour. And speaking of deals and valuations, fresh off a more than $10 billion acquisition of Anaplan, Toma Bravo co-founder Orlando Bravo is going to join us for an exclusive you don't want to miss. And Buffett's not the only one making big bets in tech. On the heels of Elon Musk joining Twitter's board, we are talking moderation with the former CEO of Reddit later this hour, Dean. A big show ahead, John, but we are going to kick off today's feed with Warren Buffett's newest investment. And it's in tech. HP Inc., the printer and computer maker, Berkshire Hathaway, now the company's largest shareholder with an 11% stake worth more than $4 billion. But following Musk's Twitter stake, investors like Buffett are making big calls about what has value in this market? Here is Mike Santoli with about how to think about Berkshire's investment. And Mike, yeah, a lot of the commentary today is what is HP? Is it an Apple or an IBM? It is interesting because typically these legacy tech plays are a little easier to understand. There's no doubt, Dee. And I think there's actually a little bit of both of Apple and IBM in the investment proposition when it comes to HP. Uh, The cheapness of of HP uh, and the fact that it's more of a cash flow buyback story is a lot about the original IBM uh, investment, although HP has done a little bit better in terms of preserving those cash flows and having those buybacks be uh, somewhat effective. Here's how Berkshire Hathaway kind of breaks apart into its component pieces, very vaguely speaking. Of course, Apple is worth more than 20%. The Apple stake is worth more than 20% of Berkshire's current market cap at over $150 billion. And you see Berkshire stock and Apple have actually tracked relatively well over the past year. Then you have Allstate, just a broad proxy for the insurance operations, United Pacific, uh, Union Pacific, the railroad, actually uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, a big part uh, of Berkshire. So it sort of makes sense how Berkshire has performed given uh, this backdrop. One interesting thing about HP is that buyback is very aggressive, HP is doing. So it's going to buy back some $4 billion worth of shares. If you assume Berkshire's not selling into it, that only leaves 89% of the stock of of HP shares that that $4 billion is going to be purchasing from. Uh, That's a pretty big percentage of the now $38 billion market value of the non-Berkshire HP market cap. If you think about it in those terms, it seems like a pretty good backstop for Berkshire's uh, purchase here. Interesting. Mike Santoli, thank you. Uh, Deirdre, it's an interesting um, challenge, right, trying to figure out what the value of HP is. Because, you know, if I think back, you know, 10-plus years, there was a time when HP was trying to figure out software plays, both in consumer and in enterprise. They never really did it. Like, if you think about all of the important productivity trends that have come through over that amount of time, you think about, you know, Zoom, and you think about accessories and all those various things, you look at HP.com, right? It's printers, it's PCs, that's pretty much it. 
the, mm -hmm. the software plays didn't really work. So if they're looking for another leg of growth, are they going to go try to you know design their own chips? They haven't made the acquisition yeah. to do that the way Apple has. Are they going to push into productivity software? Haven't really done that. Stuff. Yep. To Mike's point, though, is that really why Berkshire Hathaway bought this company or did they buy it for the buyback story? I think that's a, a key question here, and that's why they bought IBM, but that didn't really work out. It's also interesting. I know we're going to be talking to Orlando Bravo later, John, but we're seeing these deals happen at a time where the market's kind of holding its breath. It's stumbling a little bit. The Nasdaq is down another three-tenths of a percent today. A lot of folks calling the recent rally that we've seen a bear market rally. What are these funds seeing that perhaps the ordinary investor may not be seeing? Is there a mandate? We know that so much money had been accumulated over the last few years. Do they have to go out and spend it now? And will be also interesting, John, if we see sort of funds with a non-tech mandate or non-tech experience start to dip their toes in a bigger way into some of these companies that have seen their valuations compress. Yeah, I think the problem for tech investors to watch out for, though, is in tech, a lot of times, if you're not growing aggressively as a company, you're crumbling before too long, unlike mm. some of these other industries where you can just sort of, you know, be in a throw off cash for a long time and everything's fine. Not always the case in tech. Well, so where else could you look for opportunity in today's market? Joining us now to discuss Satori Funds, Dan Niles. Dan, uh, interesting move from uh, Buffett buying HP. Doesn't sound like what you would do. Uh, no, I like companies that are in growing industries, that um, there's more value to it 10 years from now than today. Um, and you, I think you touched on it well in your preamble. You know, they've tried to get into things like software. It hasn't worked out very well. I think this company's a lot more like IBM. I mean, you can switch from an HP computer to a Dell computer. You can switch from their printer to a Canon printer. There's just no lock-in, um, at least with an Apple. You know, if you are on their ecosystem and you bought things off of iTunes or movies, et cetera, there's some sort of lock-in there. There's none with HP. So it's great for a buyback. It's great for the dividend. You know, utility stocks are the second best performing sector in the market this year. They're up 6%, which is unusual when you think about it, because usually utilities move inversely to whatever interest rates are doing. So if the 10-year Treasury is going up a lot, like it has this year, you normally expect utilities stocks to go down. That's not what, what's happened this year so far. So I think, you know, HP is going to sort of go down, unfortunately, the same path as more IBM versus an Apple in that regard. Yeah, interesting how Dell, which was once a, a peer of HP's, um, more significantly made some aggressive moves into software, into storage, and is configured differently today as a result. But let's, let's get caught up on how you're looking at this market, uh, especially your don't fight the Fed uh, <laughs> mantra, which means something different with interest rates on the rise. What have you learned over the past couple of weeks since we last had you on about how the market's reacting to the interest rate, anticipated interest rate moves? Well, I think the biggest thing you've learned is you look at what Lael Brainerd had to say, who's considered a dovish member of the Fed. And I saw that statement where she said that not having a job uh, or inflation is just as bad as not having a job. And that's from a dovish member of the Fed. So that tells you that the Fed, for whatever reason, whether it's Powell getting renominated in November or the data since then, has decided, OK, we really have to go deal with inflation 
And we're going to have to get very aggressive to deal with it. And, you know, people love to use don't fight the Fed for justifying, you know, why to buy stocks and why the stock market should go up. But, you know, remember, the Fed added four point eight trillion of stimulus since the start of the pandemic. The government gave us five and a half trillion in stimulus since the start of the pandemic. So that's over 10 trillion. The U.S. economy is only 20.5 trillion in size. So that's why the stock market's gone up over the last two years. You didn't want to fight the Fed. You've had the market go up with a global pandemic the last two years. So the same thing applies on the way back down. And you've seen that as rates have continued to go higher and the markets continue to struggle, particularly technology stocks, which are the worst sector within the S&P 500, you know, throwing comm services in there, obviously, as well, that has Internet in it. Hey, Dan, it's Deirdre. You say don't fight the Fed, but the Nasdaq still down 15 percent from its 52 week high. How do we know how much of this is baked in? I know you think the recent rally was a bear market rally. How much further could we go in, in the downside? No, I think there's a lot more downside. I mean, I, I've been I said when we came into this year, I thought the market would be down at least 20 percent. And, you know, what I would say is that the, at least is definitely the case, because I look at this and I say, well, I've got Europe, which obviously business there is starting to slow down. You've seen Adobe come out, Restoration Hardware, UiPath. Those companies all had February quarter ends. Remember, Russia invaded on February 24th. So that's only four days left in their quarters. They all reported. They all said, you know, Europe's slowing down, et cetera. Those stocks are down between, I think, 35 to 75 percent this year. They went down about 9 percent to 26 percent the day they reported after they had already been down a lot. So that shouldn't make you feel particularly good if you're going into earnings season when between currency, the dollar being really strong, between what's going on in Europe, between China being in lockdown again and being the biggest end market in the world for things like autos or PCs or smartphones, you know, all of that should make you very concerned given where valuations are sitting and given the Fed is now looking at inflation as a biggest as a big problem even akin to not yeah. having a job, that should make you very nervous. And that's why, Dan, I know you're recommending cash for the average investor, given that macro backdrop. But to John and my earlier conversation, what do you make of all the deal making that is taking place? We had Berkshire Hathaway this morning, uh, Toma Bravo um, a few weeks ago. Do you think that these funds um, have a mandate to spend? Do you think that that could actually spur a recovery? Do you think we'll see more of it? Yeah, that's what not the way see? I look at it. Yeah, so every firm is different, right? If you're private equity, venture capital, you're given money to go out and invest. And so, you know, they're making management fee on the amount of assets they have, as well as the return on their portfolio. And so for them, in a big way, you know, you go into a downturn, you have a lot of assets, you're still getting paid your 2% management fee, um, whether the portfolio is performing well or not. So that's a little different. Um, you know, so I think it depends on the firm. The thing you have to remember is those people might be investing. But as I said earlier, you had 10 trillion come into the market between the Fed and government stimulus checks over the last two years that aren't coming in. They're reversing. That's going to more than overwhelm whatever you're seeing from the Thomas Bravos of the world, et cetera. So I think you don't want to lose sight of the big picture because it's really easy to get caught up into, oh, the market's down today. It's up. It's up the next day, et cetera. The big picture of don't fight the Fed, that's the one you want to be focused on. And don't fight the fundamentals either. If numbers are continuing to come down because you've still got pandemic give back, numbers are moving lower for the first time in probably like six or seven quarters. 
at this point, you know, that's even more important in my mind because you don't know how much things are going to slow down. As we've said before, we're looking at stagflation in 2023 is our base case, which means high inflation, low growth. We think a recession is very likely next year, towards the end of next year, because of all these factors. And by the way, we've laid it out on DanNiles.com so people can, you know, it's hard to get into in five or six minutes, right? So you've got a lot of detail there in terms of our thought process on this. Finally, Dan, you expect uh, earnings and the reaction to them to be the next triggering event? Absolutely, because, you know, as I said earlier, you look at Adobe, Restoration Hardware, UiPath. I was shocked to see those stocks go down 9 to 26% the day they reported off the numbers. Because I'm like, well, it shouldn't be a surprise that Europe is slowing down. I mean, obviously, Russia's in the Ukraine. Stocks got clobbered anyway after being down a lot into those prints. Mm -hmm. So I think you've had an extra month. You know, this war has gone on even longer. Um, Who knows when it ends? I think it'll end at some point in Q2. But between that and lockdowns in China, again, that doesn't make you feel particularly good, especially given you've also got people going from spending on goods to now services and so some of those items like, you know, autos or smartphones or PCs, et cetera, you may see a big slowdown in that, which is going to cause some more consternation because some of those sectors, you know, like HP, which is in the PC sector, obviously that's considered value. But if numbers have to get cut, you may see a big problem even in quote unquote value sectors. Another big earnings season where investors are going to have to uh, read the lines and between them. Dan Niles, thank you. Thanks, John. Toma Bravo co-founder Orlando Bravo is up next talking crypto, public and private valuations, and a whole lot more. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Got check on video games. City says it is safe to enter the metaverse this morning, initiating Roblox with a buy and a $59 price target. Sees a strong pipeline for growth with the company's recent acquisitions, arguing low relative expectations make it a safer bet. Shares are less than half what they were at the start of the year. And it's not just Roblox. City also initiating Unity with a buy and $125 price target. Says the company's foundation is solid thanks to a strong software engine and momentum in mobile with opportunities to expand into non-gaming verticals as well, Dee. 
Let's turn now to one of the biggest names in private equity and investing at large. Toma Bravo is a private equity firm with more than $100 billion in assets and just made waves in the tech world with their $10.7 billion buyout of Anaplan after that company's valuation plunged. With us now, Toma Bravo co-founder Orlando Bravo, who joins us from the Bitcoin 22 conference in Miami. Orlando, it is great to have you with us this morning. I certainly want to get into what you've announced in Miami and Bitcoin. But first, with the Nasdaq at session lows, I want to get your thoughts on the broader market. We saw this decent rally in tech, but markets seem to be getting more cautious again. Do you think it was a bear market rally? And how are you thinking of deal making at this moment? Well, Deirdre, first of all, thank you for having me. I spent all week in New York, the first part of the week where it was raining. And then I came in last night. Uh, to do a panel that they had asked me to do at the Bitcoin conference, and I feel like I need sunglasses here. It is bright, <laughs> there's music, there's 30,000 people in Bitcoin, uh, a completely uh, different and, and very, very interesting environment. Look, the, it is very clear to us that the market has changed. The market is looking for profitable growth. And these great software businesses and these great innovators now for, for about a decade have done a great job at innovating, at focusing on their top line, at accelerating those growth rates. And those trends are very powerful and even doing better today. But at the same time, investors, and public investors in particular, are looking for shorter-term profitability, especially with the rising interest rate environment. So that has caused these software stocks that are unprofitable today, yet they are great companies, to be down, on average, over 50%. And everyone needs to get the memo that the market has changed and you need to be highly profitable and show that while you're growing your business. For us, we have been buying software companies and partnering with these great innovators and teams now for 25 years. And we have one mission. Can we work with these great innovators to also have them be great companies? And the way we're seeing the market now is incredibly attractive. If you can buy control, with existing management of a software business that fits your strategy because that gives you the capability of improving operations and creating that profitable growth that all investors want. Orlando, uh, you, as you say, Tomo Bravo has 25 years experience, but you're starting to see examples of other firms with little tech experience come into the space, like Brookfield this morning with CDK. So valuations to them may be looking more attractive, but what is the risk that it ends badly for them, especially as rates rise and they may be unable to make them profitable because of that lesser experience? In, in the overall industry, competition is good. And we actually need more control private equity players in the software space. Just SaaS software today is over a $2.5 trillion market cap, and that's just in the public companies. So the more players that come in and understand it and do a good job, it means that firms like us and some of our peers have more places to look for liquidity and more homes for these, for these great assets with, with good owners. What are the odds that, that, that this ends badly, as you say, for some of these owners? Look, if you have a clear operating plan and alignment with management, it comes back to operations, and that's what's different about private equity than the public markets. If you have a clear plan, and a track record of doing it, where you can produce high margins out of these companies, 40, 50%. What are the odds that it ends badly? Very low, because you have incredible tailwinds 
behind you where the whole world is going digital, where software is not an industry anymore, it's the business of every industry. And on top of that, you have incredible business economics. Where do these assets trade on a PE basis versus the S&P 500? Higher growth, all recurring revenue, better businesses, they'll trade at a premium to the S&P. So if you can produce that in your business case, you should be in good shape. So uh, Orlando, what's the particular playbook that's important now? I mean, about six-ish months ago, you finished the acquisition of Talend, you know, kind of in a multi-cloud data environment. That's important. Now, Anaplan, you would think, you know, enterprises, businesses of all sizes need to plan these days. How do you position them outside of the, the operational excellence that, of course, uh, we expect you to focus on, how, how do you position them to re-enter the public market? Or is it uh, acquisitions, combining them with other companies? What's the playbook? Thank you for asking that. Our philosophy on the playbook has not changed for 25 years, the overall philosophy. And that is work with existing management, adapting yourself to the culture of the company, make a great innovator also a great operator. So add a big component of that, and then look to pursue add-on acquisitions as you build balance sheet capacity to do that. Now, you, 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 that's a really good question because within that philosophy, our tactics have changed over time. As we got into infrastructure software, cybersecurity, SaaS, and now you're asking about Anaplan in particular. One of the key things is to recognize that these companies, and Anaplan in particular, has the potential to change the way an entire function is run, and some of these businesses, the way entire industries are set up. So what you add to that is the ability to think big and take good and big risks so you can create these huge market caps of tomorrow. And we think that the next decade is gonna be absolutely the decade of the digital enterprise. Hmm. Remember, in the enterprise space, it all happens first in the consumer. Right. The consumer can change your behavior a lot quicker. The enterprise space, you take a while for organizations to really adapt these technologies and these new ways of doing things. Right. It is so clear from what we're looking ahead of us, from what we're seeing, that these trends are only accelerating now. Or Orlando, uh, talent, and technology talent, also a very important piece of this, uh, attracting it, retaining it. Uh, tell us about Toma Bravo Oasis and this idea of allowing uh, employees in the company to cash out their equity uh, without a, a go public event. Um, what are you working on there and what do you expect its impact on portfolio companies to be? You are the, the first person publicly that asked me about that, and I really appreciate that. That's, it's a very important innovation that our team and Toba Bravo set up. The one issue that the whole tech industry has now, and software being very specific, regardless of location now, is employee retention. How do you get the best young people working at your company? How do you create their career paths? How do you motivate them? How do you work with them? Now, we have, coming from our world of owning businesses, we believe that one owner with one agenda aligned with management and that leadership team produces a better result than thousands of other owners with thousands of agendas, i.e. the public markets. So one of the things we look for is how can we continue to improve the private equity model? The public market does give employees and colleagues in these great firms the ability to have more liquidity through restricted stock. And we can argue whether it's been too little or too much. Now, through Oasis, we have created the capability of providing liquidity 
to employees and management over time as they build these companies. So you can correlate and receive the benefits directly of your operational improvements and of your results and of your accountability with financial gain without needing to be public in the short term. Yeah, no, no doubt, Orlando, it helps your competitive edge in getting into some of these deals. I want to get to the reason we're talking to you as well. Uh, it's hard to ignore the Bitcoin bull that is right behind you in sunny Miami. Uh, you were hosting a panel and you were going to reveal your sort of aha moment when you really bought into crypto and Web3. What was that? And do you think that that's happening at a faster pace among traditional institutional investors? It, it really does. Look, I am here because I am very excited about this movement and the value that it has to society as a whole. Young people and innovators as a whole have created a new financial system, a peer-to-peer -peer financial system that continues to get better. Security on it will be better, speed will be better, transparency will be better. When you think of that, what it does is it makes governments that have a monopoly over their currency more accountable because it gives people now the ability to exit, the ability to have more voice. Competition in currency is a very good thing. And this movement uh, allows that or enables that, that to happen. My aha moment in, in, in Bitcoin and digital currencies came really late. I lived in San Francisco for many years before moving to Miami. And I would go to all these places and dinners and, and what have you. And it was all around me, but I was just so focused uh, on the next software deal, which we love and what our team loves to do. Now, when the pandemic came, it allowed me to slow down, to really think about the world a little deeper, to read a little more, and to meet all kinds of people. And when I was spending some time in Puerto Rico during the pandemic, there were all these young people that would look at, at their phones, and I was looking at my stocks, and they were looking at their digital currencies. So it really made me think about it, and it's very consistent with my values. That's fascinating. It kind of happened in uh, Puerto Rico. Orlando, I want to, you talked about competition, so I want to ask you specifically about some of the exchanges. Tomo Bravo has invested in the exchange FTX. When it comes to fees, though, some, like Jim Chanos on our air, said that it's a race to the bottom. And this morning I spoke to Binance CEO CZ, who said that they were actually getting ready to cut fees to zero so that they could gain share in the U.S. Are these platforms good investments? I think they're phenomenal investments. And the key here is what we believe in our private equity business. That was done out of our growth fund, which we have quite a bit of exposure to some of these great business models and companies, is what is your ability to execute? Who has the better management team? Because it's relatively early. There are a lot of things to navigate, including big regulatory hurdles. We firmly believe that Sam Bankman, he is a an amazing leader. It's so unusual to have a founder, leader, and CEO combine incredible strategic intent with the ability to operate at a really high scale. And Sam has that, the team has that, and we believe they're gonna be one of the huge winners, if not the one in this space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you and others believe that there will be more than just fees to make money off of. Orlando Bravo, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. Chip stocks, some of the biggest underperformers yesterday. NVIDIA now on pace for its worst week since January, almost 30% off its highs for the year and shares down more than 10% in a week after a great 2021. Don't miss more of today's market action after the break. Stay with us.
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa. Markets lower this morning as China names lead the Nasdaq lower. Pinduoduo, JD, Baidu, some of the top laggards. Plus, Elon Musk joining Twitter's board, raising questions about what content moderation should look like on the platform. We will break things down with former Reddit CEO Ellen Powell in a moment. But now it's time for a news update. Morgan Brennan has that for us. Morgan. Hi, John. Well, here's what's happening at this hour. Weekly jobless claims have fallen to a 54-year low. The 166,000 new claims are also well below estimates. Continuing claims are up slightly, but still near their lowest level since 1970. Constellation Brands getting a boost from strong beer sales and earnings that topped estimates. However, the company is giving full-year profit guidance that is below forecasts. Potato giant Lamb Weston is surging 7%, though, after raising its outlook for sales and margins. That company also posting a big earnings beat. General Motors is restarting efforts to sell its all-electric Chevy Bolt. This after a series of recalls to fix rare battery fires. GM is launching a major ad campaign to support the Bolt. The automaker expects Bolt sales to hit a new record this year. And the U.S. is cracking down on Russian airlines flying Boeing planes. The Commerce Department says Aeroflot and two other carriers are violating U.S. sanctions tied to the invasion of Ukraine. And Commerce officials say today's orders cut off international support and U.S. parts needed to support the carrier's jets. Back over to you, John. Morgan, thank you. As Elon Musk joins Twitter's board of directors, his history on the platform has some concern about what it might mean for content moderation. Our next guest hopes Twitter is figuring out how to limit his influence rather than embrace it. Uh, former Reddit CEO Ellen Powell joins us now. Ellen, welcome. Uh, I, I don't think it's possible to limit Elon Musk's influence. I mean, he's, he's got 80 million plus followers on Twitter. He's very prolific on it. Doesn't seem inclined to control his impulse. I mean, their best hope, to, it seems to me, is that he just decides to exercise some level of restraint. Yeah, I, I think that you can't, control him as an individual. We've seen even the SEC has put um, restrictions on his tweeting because he's um, violated their rules and uh, and he hasn't followed them. So I think you know, what I'm most worried about is that he gets the company to change its overall standards for all users. And he's talked about um, wanting to be kind of free speech, which I'm not sure what it means for a private company. But it, you know, but if you start loosening um, the the restrictions and allow people to harass others more, it's going to be um, a bad day. Well, it seems um, to me also like the best possible outcome 
for, for Twitter would be something like the Steve Jobs-Disney relationship. He became the biggest individual shareholder when Disney purchased Pixar, and certainly uh, you know, Disney's animation apparatus was in rough shape. Uh, he was able to help them, but he didn't do it publicly. He didn't publicly criticize them. He, he seemed to have a good relationship with Bob Iger. Uh, how would that playbook look for, for Elon Musk to pursue that avenue in this? I just, I, I think that would be better having a bunch of, you know, tweets trying to, you know, make decisions around and having his users vote about it doesn't seem like a very effective or um, useful process. But I think, you know, but what is he going to try to convince them to do? I think that's the piece that is, um, you know, it doesn't look good. Like he's tweeted a bunch of, um, you know, fairly uh, negative tweets around, uh, you know, he's tweeted Hitler memes twice. He's tweeted, um, you know, calling somebody a pedophile without any evidence. It, 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 you wonder what is he, you know, what does he want to be able to do? And is he going to change rules to allow himself to do that? And then what does that look like for everybody um, using Twitter? Hey, Ellen, it's Deirdre. At the same time, Elon Musk is doing all of this out in the open. He's polling people to find out what they think about changes at Twitter. He's announcing the sale of his shares before he's even legally required to. Is there an argument to be made that Elon Musk is actually more transparent than the standard than he's required to be? My understanding is he actually violated the SEC regulations by not reporting his ownership. I think he went over the 5% bar um, much earlier than he actually reported his 9.2% ownership, and he actually made over $150 million um, by not reporting it. So I don't think he's as transparent as he um, tries to position himself as. So, And I think the polls, like his users are different than the overall um, Twitter population, I'm actually blocked by him. So there are a bunch of people who never see those polls and aren't going to be able to participate. And while he thinks that's actually representative of what Twitter users want, it's actually not going to be. Ellen, is there a risk, though, that more content moderation um, could make a certain part of the population or certain groups feel like their content is being censored? That could lead to more polarization. Is there an argument to be made that People should be able to decide for themselves. I'm sorry, I'm you're cut off there. I, I was asking. Um, I think is there a worry that if you have more content moderation, you risk some groups feeling like their information is being censored and they're not able to make up their minds for themselves. So, how much content moderation are you talking about? How do you balance that, and how do you not go down that slippery slope? And I think, you know, if you want to harass people, I don't think that should be protected. And maybe you feel bad because you feel restricted that you're not able to um, yell hate speech at people. But, you know, if Twitter wants to create an environment that's more healthy, getting rid of harassment, getting rid of online harassment, which often leads to real life harassment and harm, is, is an important thing for them to do. I don't see it as limiting people's speech. A lot of what Twitter's done in the past couple of years is not limiting speech. It's limiting the, the ability of people to um, call, each, call other people um, by racist slurs, by sexist slurs. But, you know, it's limiting the ability of people to shout others off of the, you know, the digital town square. And I think, you know, in, in a 
you know, in a better world, it would be like a set of rules that govern, you know, the acceptable and unacceptable behavior. But right now you have a bunch of people who are harassing other people off of the platform and they're deciding what is acceptable speech and what's not acceptable speech. And that, you know, and you have people like Lindy West and Ta-Nehisi Coates who aren't on Twitter anymore because they, they don't want to deal with the harassment and they've been kind of pushed off of the platform. Uh, Alan, I'm sort of uh, feeling for or at least thinking about uh, Parag Agarwal in the situation, uh, CEO of Twitter. And you have been CEO of a social network trying to execute some changes and get growth going in a healthy way while not being a founder. Uh, what do you think he needs to do or, or think about, consider at this very tenuous moment? Yeah, I, I don't envy him. I think, you know, we at some point we have to draw a line in the sand, right? We can't be always pushing for growth and at, at you know whatever cost it is on other people on um, society. You look at where Facebook has gone, where they've actually you know have a product Instagram that harms girls' self-esteem that their own research shows, and that it's um, inciting violence. They've admitted in Myanmar, like what. Um, where is the line where you know we're not just going to focus on growth, we're going to focus on healthy growth, which in the long term is actually better for the platform, more people will participate, maybe you can get folks who have gone off the platform to come back, but in the short term it may limit you know your growth. When we were at Reddit, you know, we got rid of a bunch of harmful subreddits and the and it still kept growing, right? There's it you know People always think, oh, if we get rid of the hate and the harassment, it's going to cut engagement and fewer people are going to want to be on the platform. But we actually saw that the opposite happens. More people want to participate. They participate more. They don't get, you know, um, I take breaks. I take like three week breaks at a time because it gets to be too toxic. And I know a lot of people who do that. And I think if you had a healthier platform, um, fewer people would do that. You'd have more engagement. You have more people involved. So I don't know that it's necessarily the case that everybody assumes that getting rid of hate and harassment is going to limit growth. All right. Well, the conversation in Twitter's boardroom about to get a lot more interesting. Ellen Powell, thank you. Thank you for having me. And speaking of that, investors, they certainly are weighing what Elon Musk's new board seat on Twitter could mean for the company. Shares are still up more than 30 percent this week. They are finally lower today by more than six and a half percent. Elon himself tweeting out one suggestion, though, and that is that things are about to get lit. We're back in just a moment. Quick check on the markets. The Nasdaq hitting fresh session lows down about nine tenths of one percent. Biggest laggards in the NDX. John Pinduoduo, Lucid, JD.com. Yeah, D and uh, also software stocks. Uh, have been volatile in this market, but some specialized companies have a new playbook uh, turning to developers to drive deliberate growth. I spoke with Avalara CEO Scott McFarlane about the tax and compliance software company's recent move to help partners build smarter tools into their platforms. What I think is really exciting and why people like APIs so much, and, and if you do it right and you provide a tool that people can do this really easily with, is, is it allows them to create applications that we haven't even thought about. I mean, use cases that they see how what we do is inside their workflow and we can make it simpler for what they do. 
So investors take note. It's a theme I'm hearing more and more these days, especially from companies with a specialized industry focus. They want their software to be an ingredient that customers can bake into the experience as a way to spur growth. So a construction management software company, Procore, another public company doing this. And so is shipping startup Shippo in the private space, D. Great stuff, John. Up next, Facebook's idea for a new currency dubbed Zuckbox. Tech Check is back in just a moment. As we watch the Nasdaq move lower for a third day in a row, gut check on SoFi here. Shares are falling sharply after the fintech company lowered its 2022 guidance. The company is saying that the Biden administration's extension of the pause on student loan payments could hit their business of loan refinancing. Shares are now cut in half since January, down another nearly 12% today. On the other side of this break, Binance CEO CZ, we are back in two. Don't go away. Binance's U.S. arm, that's the American subsidiary of the world's largest crypto exchange by volume, raising its first funding round of $200 million at a $4.5 billion valuation. This morning in a Tech Check Plus live stream, I got the chance to chat with Binance CEO Chongpeng Zhao, better known as CZ. I asked him about fees on crypto platforms as his U.S. arm uses those funds raised to gain market share. Is it a race to the bottom? I think on the fees, most likely it will be a race, but race to the bottom, uh, at least in the short term. So um, I think we are prepared to to do that race, and we may we, we may pro- we most likely will lead it. So um, uh, we may cause that. And um, I believe that Binance US have a very strong advantage in terms of the uh, it's very small team, uh, low, much lower cost base, and they should be able to. And with the fundraise, that they, they they should be able to sustain for a long time. So um, I think that's going to happen. Yeah. And he said that unlike other crypto companies here in the U.S., they're not going to be spending big on advertising and marketing. I also had the chance to ask him what cryptos he's holding. The answer might surprise you. Uh, it's very simple. Um, I hold uh, BNB and BTC. Uh, I bought that's BTC it. in 2014. Um, that's it. I still hold them. And then I have BNB um, uh, myself. And that's it. I only, hold, I only hold those two. Interesting. Why is that? I don't have time to look at other crypto. Like most people think I know a lot. I know every crypto out there, but that's not true. I I, I got a company to run. Uh, I got regular. I got regulators to talk to. I got like you know prime ministers to talk to. So I actually don't have time to research, read about different cryptocurrencies. I actually don't recommend um, for most people. I don't recommend people to hold more than five to ten cryptocurrencies, because if you hold less than five, you pretty you can pretty much follow the company and follow those projects very carefully. There's a lot out there. Uh, for more, let's bring in Kate Verney, who is live on the scene at Miami in Bitcoin, in Miami at Bitcoin 2022, and joins us. Uh, Kate, CZ also said he was very busy because he's spending most of his time on regulation, meeting with prime ministers, other heads of states, and talking about what that looks like. That was so interesting. I loved that conversation about the fact that he's really only holding a few. That definitely caught me by surprise. Uh, This conversation here at Bitcoin 2022, of course, about the OG cryptocurrency Bitcoin. We had Kathy Wood and Michael Saylor just on stage a couple minutes ago. They wrapped up about 30 minutes ago. Notable Bitcoin bulls. They did talk a lot about politics. Kathy Wood says that she's seen the politics around Bitcoin changing radically, and she says At this point, she thinks it's bipartisan. Here's what she said. There is someone whispering in uh, the the ears of politicians, if you want to lose, 
If you want the US to lose out on this, the, one of the most amazing innovation platforms of all times, you keep talking like that. So she has changed her tune. So I'm very positive here. I think the movement is spreading pretty quickly now. So that was in reference to Janet Yellen and her speech about cryptocurrencies today. And she, Kathy Wood also pointed to some of her early comments about Bitcoin really being used for money laundering and nefarious use cases. She said she's really noticed a change and a lot of politicians also mentioned Gary Gensler, chair of the SEC. She said, you know, they could use more clarity on some of the other cryptocurrencies aside from Bitcoin. But his stance on Bitcoin being a commodity, he's been clear about that. She said that has solidified Bitcoin's position as the go-to here, and she says it's really not going away. We have gotten some other news out of the conference, but of course, Michael Saylor and Kathy Wood uh, did draw a pretty big crowd just now. All right, Kate Rooney, thank you. Speaking of crypto, Jack Dorsey's block leaning into the name change with a preview of its newest Bitcoin wallet. Company's hardware lead tweeting out some images showing several devices that feature what appear to be fingerprint readers and USB-C charging ports. Looks like that fake rock where you hide your spare house key in the garden. Wonder if they have a wallet shaped like a frog. We'll keep an eye on that story. Stay with us. Zuckbucks is next. One more thing, and that is Zuckbucks. In search of another stream of revenue, the Financial Times reports Meta is exploring the creation of a digital currency for the metaverse, or Zuckbucks, as some employees close to the project have taken to calling it. This wouldn't be a crypto that exists on the blockchain, but closer to in-app tokens controlled by the company, like the Robux used for purchases in the Roblox ecosystem. Do you know what my favorite digital currencies are? Dollars? and credit card loyalty points. I, I, I'm just happy with those. What about your Chuck E. Cheese tokens, John? You used to talk about those. Yeah. Just for fun, I asked uh, CZ if he had heard of Zuckbox, what he thought. He said he hadn't even read anything about it. So when the CEO of the largest crypto exchange doesn't hear about your digital currency, uh, not exactly a vote of confidence. But this is interesting that it's not your typical crypto based on the blockchain. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Meantime, John, the Nasdaq, near lows of the day, uh, that sort of the three-day losing streak continues, making it look more and more like a bear market rally of the recent one. Well, CZ's too busy talking to prime ministers and worrying about regulators to be reading about Zuckbucks <laughs> or, you know, dealing with a whole bunch of random cryptocurrencies, of course. Yes, uh, you mentioned that movement uh, in the markets. It's been a lot going on with uh, tech stocks. Uh, HPQ, Hewlett Packard, which you mentioned earlier, up 15.5%. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.